Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Bee podcast. My name is Stuart Ratcliffe. I'm a beekeeper in southern Indiana. This podcast is about beekeeping and agriculture, and so far has been mostly about beekeeping, but I hope to talk with people in other areas of agriculture as I get more involved in that myself. I have a Thinking Bee podcast Facebook group page that I encourage you to join and get involved with. I have a questions and answers episode that I'm going to be doing every week or every other week. So I'm going to be looking for questions for that. In this episode, I talk with Peter Loringborst, who has some commercial beekeeping experience. He worked at Cornell's Dice Bee Lab as the chief apiarist. He was a New York State apiary inspector for a few years, and he also has over 30 publications in the American Bee Journal. So we talk about his background and his beekeeping experience, the possibility for national and global bee decline, and a scientific approach to beekeeping. So here's my talk with Peter Loringborst. Thanks for uh, doing this. Um, yeah, I yeah just no started, trouble at all. just started um, a beekeeping podcast, uh, I guess the beginning of January, and so... Uh, there's only a couple of other ones out there, but I've been uh, listening to podcasts for the last couple of years and enjoyed them a lot. Yeah. So I just decided to kind of start my own with beekeeping since it's something I'm kind of familiar with. But um, no, that's a good idea. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know why I thought you were more active on Bee Source. I kind of went back and and looked at all your your different posts, and I guess there weren't really that many. But I guess I thought that because the ones that you had posted or the threads you had started, you know, typically you got a lot of responses and replies, you know, just um, usually subjects, I think, that got people's, you know, brains thinking about things, whether it was, you know, something right. about genetics or disproving right. a um, type of beekeeping technique, technique or method, so... Right. Well, so so I've been work. I've been um, contributing to the BL since probably I think nineteen ninety nine or maybe two thousand, and it's a moderated list. You know, in other words, Aaron Morse moderates it, and if, if things get rowdy, you know, he'll he'll rein it in, and um, even you know um, cut off threads if they're if they're getting to be too you know argumentative or, or repetitive, or et cetera. Whereas B source seems to be more like the Wild West, and I think there's a reason for that. I think he likes to get things stirred up because it causes more traffic, and he's telling advertising, mm. where, whereas BL is completely, there, there's no there's no monetary, it's not monetized. Yeah, so, yeah, I think maybe there's a lot of people in general that just like controversy and arguing, so I think it's right, right. nature. <laughs> right, and also BL is, um, it's, refers to itself as the informed discussion, and so, you know, people just really go way off off the deep end. You know, somebody will say, well, that's not really informed. That's, you know, yeah. opinionated or, 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 you know, just people trying to be argumentative for argumentative sake. But I'll tell you what the, what the tipping point for me was with B-Source. Is I'll get involved in conversations and I'll try to have intelligent conversations. But when people start to make rude comments and insult, and I'm just I'm just out of there, you know. Yeah, there's so. you're not gonna get 
you know, further along in, in some type of understanding if you're just throwing mm-hmm. insults. And... No, no, somebody just insults insults me, just point blank insults me just for, because they can. So I don't, I don't, I don't stay. Yeah. Yeah. You know? That's, that's really understandable. I think, um, yeah, the, yeah. I, I kind of, I, I, I had heard of BL, you know, just people mention it in a post, you know, once in a while, but I never really went out there to find it and, and see what it was all about, but I can't believe how long it's been around and, and right. now that I know about it, I feel like I've been missing out. <laughs> well, you know, we started and maybe we should talk about something else. Um, do you want to just move on? Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we could talk about that all evening, and then we'd run out of time. I mean, I don't know how much time you have. Um, do you have, you know, an hour or uh, forty-five? Well, minutes, I think or? I think we could do we can do at least a half an hour. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe maybe do some more on another day. Yeah. Because sure. my my family wants to wants to watch Sherlock Holmes, and I okay. I told them I would I would okay. come back in a half an hour. Yeah, I'll but, I'll, I'll make sure you're you're back in time for that. <laughs> Um, well, yeah, I, I guess just, uh, maybe a little bit of just a, you know, a brief kind of background on yourself. Um, you know, I know that, I guess it said online that you'd worked, you know, starting out at a bee supply store and then, um, you know, there's, I don't know what happened between then and then by the time that you got involved with, uh, the Dice Bee Lab and, you know, Mm -hmm. and then, um, working as a state be inspector right. in New York, you know, kind of a right. maybe a brief uh, rundown on that. Well, actually, my first job working for bees, working with bees. <clears throat> let me start over. Actually, my first job working with bees was in 1974. Um, you know, it's sort of like in the back to nature uh, time of the 70s, and and I was really kind of casting about for uh, you know a job that I could. I could really get interested in something I could make my, you know, be my life's work. And I read about beekeeping, and I really never had any firsthand experience with beekeeping until uh, until then. I read about it and it sounded really interesting. I actually hitchhiked to Ithaca, New York, and um, went to the Dice Lab and asked uh, Dr. Morris how I could get in, into the bee, bee business. And he goes, well, you know, Get a job, kid. And I, said, I know, but but how do how do I do that? And he gave me some names, and I eventually, after a week or two, uh, connected with this um, large scale beekeeper in um, in northern uh, north northern New York along Lake Ontario. He was running two thousand uh, colonies, and he had no permanent help because he was a bit of a slave driver. People didn't generally would work one season, didn't want to come back after that. Yeah. And that's pretty much what happened to me. I worked one season, and finally the seventy-hour weeks just wore me out. And I said, "Hey, this is <laughs> this is a little bit too hard." And uh, so I moved to back to San Diego, where I'd come from, and uh, went went to work in the bee supply factory, which was a, a forty-hour week. Uh, you know, manufacturing. Actually, we manufactured a honeycomb foundation. I used to make about a thousand pounds of. Uh, bee foundation every day, mm, wow. and and sell um, beehive equipment and give advice, et cetera, et cetera. And um, on the side, I started, you know, catching swarms and building up colonies. I got to the point where I had uh, 50 colonies on the side. You know, I was harvesting a couple thousand pounds of honey and doing the whole thing, selling it out of my garage. 
And uh, um, at that point, I I turned 30, and I thought, you know, I've, I've sort of like reached a point here where I want to do something different. And my, my uh, wife and I, uh, we had two kids ages four and six. Uh, we signed up for the Peace Corps and uh, to teach beekeeping in another country, and we got assigned to go to Chile wow. and uh, start teaching beekeeping in Chile. And that was really a, an exciting time for me. I was 30, and we got in, and we got set up in a, a small university in, in rural Chile. And um, right after that, uh, the administration went from the Carter administration to the Reagan administration, and they pulled the plug on the program in the country where we were, and it was just like, it was just like over. Wow! And so uh, we were down there for six months, and I thought, oh, this is <laughs> this is a this is a terrible, yeah, a terrible mistake. You know, they should stay here. But it, you know, it's politically motivated. I'm pretty sure. But I came back and um, went to work for a, a, an outfit in Northern California. Uh, which was raising queens and package bees, and worked for them for one season, and then got laid off by them because the, the guy came out and he said, "I'm going to lay it all off, boys. I'm laying it all off because I spent my um, operating budget on sugar." Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> wow. So you're feeding that. So much. anyway, yeah, yeah, oh yeah, constantly feeding. Eating, you know, and they're turning sugar into bees and selling packaged bees. And so then we went back to San Diego again, and eventually I, I got, um, well, a friend of mine had, had built up a couple hundred hives and was selling bee pollen, and uh, he decided he wanted to do more business and less less hands-on work. So he decided to sell the bees out and, and the business selling bee pollen. So my wife and I bought this thing, from him, he financed it. So we had 450 hives, and um, we were selling about 4,000 pounds of bee pollen every year, which was worth almost as much as the honey. Mm. We would make 40,000 pounds of honey and 4,000 pounds of bee pollen every year. And uh, wow. the, the gross income from those was about equal. Um, but it was really not enough to make it, make a living, and uh, it, it, finally the handwriting was on the wall. Was that I just was not actually able to support myself doing beekeeping and on that scale. Yeah. It was either it was either get a lot bigger, get mechanized like most of the commercial operators, or get out. And I just got out at that point. Mm-hmm. And so I moved up to upstate New York and uh, got remarried. And uh, that's when the job opened up at the dice lab. I thought I was going to do bees again, yeah. but after after about a half a dozen years went by, this job opened up at the dice lab uh, to be the you know the, um, but he called me the senior apiarist. He said, "You're not a beekeeper anymore. Now you're an apiarist." <laughs> and uh, so we had about 200 hives, and I was in charge of of the day-to-day, you know, managing of the hives and, and conducting the various experiments. The professor would design these experiments on basis of what he wanted to study, what he wanted to do, and then we would implement, um, you know, implement the experiments. And we, we would produce, some some years we'd produce a pretty good amount of honey. You know, uh, one of the things that's really difficult about doing bees in, in the Northeast is that Seasons are so variable. If you're on an irrigated crop like irrigated alfalfa or or something like that, you have a pretty good 
chance of predicting what you're going to make from it. Or if you're pollinating, for example, you have a pretty good idea how much you're going to make from it. Mm-hmm. But if you're working in an area like upstate New York where one summer will be too hot, another summer will be too wet, too cold, yeah. there's really no way of predicting whether you're going to get a paying crop or not. And the people that are from here, a lot of them realize that. And what they do is if they get a really good crop, they put that, you know, they put that away. Or they what they try to do is aim, aim for a really good crop that'll tie them over for for through the lean years. Yeah, that's so anyway, that brought me up to the dice lab. I worked there for about seven years. And then, I don't know, I just decided I wanted to try something else. And that's when I worked, went to work for the uh, New York State uh, Bee Inspection Service, which is, a, you know, it's a terrific idea to have bee inspections, public service, to be educational. But but uh, I have to say that um, somehow state government has a way of just taking a good thing and turning it into a bad thing. It was a bureaucratic nightmare. It was mostly paperwork paperwork and, you know, driving around and arguing with people that didn't want their hives inspected and and um, stuff like that. Uh, in New York State, of course, if the hive, if we discover a hive that has root disease, then they're supposed to be destroyed and people don't want to, don't want to destroy them. Mm. And, the, uh, and there's no compensation, of course. One of the things that I learned by being a bee inspector and dealing with people was that really it was sort of a punitive thing. It's like the, the bee cops are coming, you know, and yeah. they find find something wrong and they're going to confiscate your equipment, blah, blah, blah. It would be better in Scotland. They have a program. I'm pretty sure Scotland, they have a program where they indemnify people. If the disease is found, um, the, the gov- government pays the beekeeper to destroy the hive so that he can he can you know buy a new hive and and restock it. It's basically an insurance program, mm. you know, where you pay a premium on the basis of per hive, and that feeds into the fund. And then if somebody has a disease problem, then they get um, compensated for their losses, which is a much smarter idea. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, people are more willing to participate in something if they, you know, if they feel like, you know, that that's not going to yeah. cost them an inordinate amount of money. Especially since, you know, there's a lot of evidence that that brood diseases can be treated with antibiotics. Somebody thinks that they're destroying equipment that could have been saved. They're going to have a bad feeling about it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You- you would think that, I mean, people, you know, no one wants to have their hives destroyed or, you know, no. but, um, you know, you would think that having that identified and then, I mean, other than antibiotics, there's, and even then, it, it doesn't always work, so you would think that you'd no, want to know true. No, you need to. No, that's true. It's true, but I'm just saying that if yeah. somebody thinks that they they had an option to not destroy them, then they're going to harbor that against you, whereas if they're getting paid or compensated to destroy them, then, then they're they're going to want to go ahead with that because uh, that is a smart move. It's just not the cheapest move. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, from from how many how many years did you do this inspecting job? Three seasons. I worked three seasons. 
one of the biggest drawbacks was that they would lay us off in the fall, and it was basically, you know, oh, we'll, we'll hire you back in the spring for sure, but you never knew yeah. for yeah. sure. And in one season, they didn't hire us back for six weeks, and I was like, the unemployment ran out, and I'm like, oh my god, this is. Yeah. <laughs> I've never been on unemployment. I'm, in my, you know, I'm in my fifties, and I'm on unemployment. This is crazy. I can't do this. Yeah, that's, that's you know, <laughs> it's hard if you just have so to. Yeah, so I decided to, to to go back to work at the university. I said, if I, if I can get a job at the university, I don't really care at this point what it is. Yeah. Um, but I got lucky. I'm doing scientific research at the at the Cornell University um, vet school. Um, we're not doing veterinary research. We're doing more um, pure research. Uh, we're studying uh, reproductive genomics. Okay. And and um, so I've learned a lot of you know really interesting techniques that have to do with analyzing DNA and studying uh, genetics and what gene functions are, et cetera. So I've never really lost my interest in in, in genetics of the honeybee because okay. a lot of this is, is, is you know applies you know, genetics. The study of genetics, of course, is going to reveal. Um, you know, things about all organisms, not just the one you're studying. Has that job uh, in some way kind of influenced, you know, having a different outlook or a different way of looking at beekeeping or, or honeybees? Can you? Well, that? you know, when I was working at the Dice Lab, I was already starting to develop more of a scientific interest, although I still stayed, um, you know, grounded in, in beekeeping as sort of a... Of a, of a adventure. But um yeah, working around, you know, um career scientists, most of most of whom have PhDs or they're working on their PhDs, mm-hmm. you know, I'm just completely surrounded by that that sort of mindset now and the, the you know, the rigor of of the discussions, the rigor of, you know, um uh you know, being with around people that have that degree of you know intellectual intellectual rigor makes you really think about what you're, you know, think about the, uh, the topic that you're considering and, and, and you know, yeah. uh, not I'm no longer satisfied just having sort of a basic knowledge about things. And, uh, you know, you want to see some proof. Yeah, I think um, yeah, you had a post about... Um, not too long ago about, you know, there's kind of a, a problem with not having a lot of um, reproducible um, studies and then how a lot of, you know, studies are not really um, that accurate and that you really need to have other people, you know, either do the same experiments or studies and, and figure out if the outcomes are the same. But it seems like it's... Uh, you know, a really huge problem that that not everyone has that type of thinking that you you know you right. have some su- supporting evidence to make right it right well right well there is is this this sort of this conflict between um, you know the scientific community and and the, and the general community the general community in fact I asked my wife about this so why do people always you know, um, why, why why are people so reluctant to believe scientists these days? And she goes, "Well, they they've been wrong about so many things." <laughs> and I'm like, "Everyone's wrong about so many yeah. things." And she goes, "But it's more serious when scientists are wrong about things." <laughs> and I'm like, well, "You know, that doesn't that doesn't make sense to me." But um, 
so there is this this conflict between sort of a populist idea about how the world works and the scientific idea about how the world works and you know the populist attitude is sort of is sort of um painted as being you know maybe uh oh basing things on sort of like uh conventional wisdom and and not really giving given to intellectual rigor, whereas the scientific community is sort of painted with a brush as as being you know uh, arrogant and 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 you know uh sort of like the, we, we know we know all about this and you don't and, and so this this sort of this antagonism between these two communities builds up and um you know it's really hard to try to stand in the middle of that you know to 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 want to want to value the scientific understanding but also want to present it in such a way that that average people feel like you know they're being communicated to not you know talked down to or or um you know yeah nobody wants some scientists to tell them that they don't know what they're talking about that they don't know what they're they don't have any idea what they're talking about they people want to be communicated to in such a way that they're Opinions are valued, but they want to be, you know, they want to edu- be educated too. Yeah, yeah, you know, I think you know, there's outliers you know, that I'm sure are, you know, do talk down to people, but you can make generalities about anything, and uh, it's just you got to learn to learn how to think about and know that not everybody's like that, and, and right. look for accurate information you know i guess it just takes a special way to to learn how to think like that but bringing it i guess back to to bees um you know i don't know how hard bees are just so finicky you know it, how do you it's almost seems like it's really hard to you know in certain um well just depending on what it is to to have the exact same study recreated bees can die for so many different reasons it you know it seems like it's insects or you know bees are just right right really right i see what you i see where you're, right, i'm sorry i see where you're going with this um there's an old saying among beekeepers is that bees don't do anything invariably in other words they're not machines. They don't respond like a thermostat. You know, thermostat kicks on when it gets cold, kicks off when it gets warm. Um, that's, you know, basically a, a machine responds to to environmental, uh, um, you know, inputs and produces some kind of a response to it. Uh, honeybee colony is not a machine. It's far closer to uh, an in- individual. There's a lot of um, researchers now are referring to colonies as individuals and and um, in the research community and also in the beekeeping industry, there's a huge emphasis on trying to get all the colonies to perform in exactly the same way. And um, one of the ways that this is done is by using uh, uniform stock. In other words, if I want to run an experiment or if I want to produce a crop of honey, I'll try to replace all the queens with uh, the same type of stock, which is going to make all the colonies perform the same way, and then maybe I'll equalize the strength. In other words, if I have strong ones and 
ones that are less populous, I'll even out the strength. And the whole impetus is to get everything the same so that I can, if I'm a commercial beekeeper, I can put, put all the supers on at the same time and they'll all fill up with honey at the same rate. And it makes life a lot easier for me. If I'm doing research, you want them all to be even so that if there's some kind of a, an effect, for example, if I treat half of them with this and I don't treat half of them, uh, then I'll know that whatever effect that I see is going to be based on uh, the treatment that I did or did not do. Whereas in the real world, every colony is different, and they're constantly trying to differentiate themselves. Um, if you take, for example, they're all receiving the same environmental input, but they're not responding in the same way to it. And within a week or two, even if you started them all up exactly the same, within a week or two, you're going to start to see individuality in the way that they react to the environment. Maybe this colony found uh, plants over here, and another colony found plants over there, and and they just got luckier in, in terms of their foraging, and, and they, they begin to really served ahead of the one right next to them. So they get individual responses. And I'm sure they have individual personalities based on their genetic makeup. And if you don't try to make everything uniform, then you begin to see really interesting differences, which makes it, to me, makes it a lot more interesting. That colony over there always produces a lot of honey, or this one over here just sat there all summer, didn't do anything. Why is that? Yeah, well, you know, I wonder if it's even even possible through, um, you know, us trying to domesticate them, if they'll ever, you know, like you said, it really just goes against their purest nature to to not be uniform. You know, that's probably how they've been able, able to survive, you know, this long, you know, by having different hives swarming at different times and being able to build back up for winter and, you know, and, and, uh, yeah, you know, I don't, it seems like it's just a lot of the studies that I've, I've read, you know, it's like by the end of the study, even if it wasn't, um, a study on, you know, survival against Varroa, if it was something else, it seems like there's a lot of colonies that end up dying before the studies even, played out and <laughs> so that is... makes it tough right yeah. yeah when i worked at the bee lab we were studying varroa so we did not treat for varroa and um pretty much by the end of the season almost all the colonies were were collapsing from from varroa mites and uh you know we would buy bees from guys this one guy in, in, the, in the local region he said he'd been raising his own queens for 15 or 20 years and they were mite resistant and he didn't have any problems with them, et cetera, et cetera. We'd get them over to the lab and and treat them like normal colonies and not do anything special to them. We treat for mites and pretty soon they're all just dying from mites. I mean, they're just all... Uh, I remember we bought 10 highs from this guy and, and they produced a huge crop of goldenrod honey in September. We took the supers off, but these looked pretty good and we came back about um, two weeks later check on them and all the bees are gone and this was before this whole thing about ccd i remember when this thing about ccd came into the news around 2006 they're talking about you know hives just collapsing in late summer and fall and how mysterious this was and i'm like that's not mysterious at all we see that every season 
We see that every year. This has been going on for a decade now. Uh, What was different about what they were seeing was that the colonies were apparently healthy, and then suddenly the the bees were gone. Whereas if if you follow your colonies closely, you you don't usually see uh, a collapse that doesn't have some kind of warning sign. Like high level, high levels. You'll see high levels in mites, and then you'll start to see bees with um, deformities, and then the colony will just will just collapse pretty quickly. But there are warning signs. Whereas this beekeeper, uh, you know, from Pennsylvania, was saying there was no warning. The hives looked fine. Came back a few weeks later, and, and there were hardly any bees, and the brood looked perfectly normal. So that that you know raised a lot of red flags. This is unusual. This is something we haven't seen before. But as time wore on, it it, it came up, became apparent that this was an anomaly. That this was hardly ever seen. The, the, the typical collapse that I described, everyone sees that. Mm-hmm. But this particular anomaly that he had seen, where the bees seemed to just vanish, leaving apparently healthy colonies, this was not. This is not a common thing. I've never seen it, and I've seen, you know, I was doing inspection. I, I never saw anything like that. Hmm. Um, usually when the hives collapsed, it was pretty obvious what had happened. With the mites had got the better of the colony. The, the viruses, um, you know, build up to a, a tipping point, and the hive just fails. Yeah, There's, no mystery. There's no mystery there. No. So... And then as time went on, people started, especially the researchers, started talking less and less about CCD. This was something that, you know, was a hypothetical, that maybe this was something new and different, but it was never really found to be a thing. I mean, it was, but the media never let go of that, because the media likes something that they can bite into, like mm. an acronym like CCD or, or you know, yeah, uh, the SARS or, or you know, anything like that, they can just bite into it. If you call it, like, for example, if you call it idiopathic um, brute disease syndrome, no, nobody's going to remember that. No. You know? uh. and, uh, and people like uh, uh, apocalyptic stories, too. Yeah. People don't like to hear that, you know, oh, this isn't really something new. This is just sort of a more of the same but more difficult. Right. Um, that people, people that doesn't make a very good story. Yeah. You know, you're just gonna have to work harder and uh try to work this out and get uh, you know, raise your skill level. That that doesn't make that good of a story. No. No. Yeah, well kinda kind of uh related to this is you um you sent me the a link about um I think I got it up here. About you know honeybee losses being um, kind of correlated with the um, honey trade and like pollination. I think you had you think I think you touched on something something similar in your uh, the rise and fall of the honeybee. You know exactly how, how um, you know a, a decline or you know a change in uh, total bee colony populations can be you know depending on on honey prices or almond prices and and that's something that the media doesn't talk anything about <laughs> right say, right uh, so so you know again the 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 idea that 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 bees are dying and that um you know bees are important to agriculture um this makes a very a very good story a very exciting story 
Um, but if you look at the history of it, there's been these ebbs and flows. In the, in the late 1800s, the beekeepers, a lot of them were the wealthiest people in town because this was a new thing, and they they'd learned how they'd gone from from having a few, uh, you know, half a dozen hives in the backyard to having hundreds and hundreds of hives and selling honey to the, um, ur- uh, you know, the, the urban markets that were building up in New York City, Philadelphia, et cetera, uh, you know, uh, uh, Chicago, et cetera. And um, it was a very lucrative thing. And, and you know, it was... Uh, and then as the beekeeping became mechanized, became a lot easier to produce honey, and there was way too much honey. The price collapsed, and all of a sudden, beekeepers are selling out because they've got this product they can't sell. Mm. So these are the types of things that happen in, in in so many markets. I mean, for example, you know, fur trade, you could be you could be making a fortune selling furs, and all of a sudden, fur goes out of fashion. Nobody yeah. wants to buy animal skins, and and it's over for you. you it doesn't matter how good of a furrier you are, People are not buying those things. It's over for you. You've got to find another job. And this is what happened in the bee, bee world um, over and over again. In the World War II, uh, there was a huge demand for beeswax. And the government was subsidizing beekeepers during the war and, and, and buying their beeswax and encouraging them to double and triple the number of colonies they had. Yeah. And the honey price of honey was high because... Uh, sugar was scarce during the war. Food was being rationed. After the war, the, the, the beeswax market collapsed. The price of honey fell to a couple cents a pound. And beekeepers are going, hey, I'm going to find another career here. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, you, you couldn't make money pollinating. Nobody was, would rent bees to pollinate their orchards. They thought, you know, be, there's not bees around. They're not going to pay money for that. But um, beekeeping industry made a comeback by by um, the fact that there are huge, vast acreages of fruit trees, apples, peaches, plums, cherries, and, of course, almonds. They would plant these in such large acreages where there were miles, hundreds of square miles of nothing but. And all of a sudden they realized, you know, there's no bees here. We didn't leave any space for the bees to live. Yeah. And they had to start renting bees from beekeepers, and gradually the price started to rise and higher the price of pollination, the less beekeepers are interested in producing honey. And as the honey, as they become less interested in producing honey, there's less honey, and then the price of honey rises. All of a sudden, it's a good time to be a beekeeper because pollination fees are high and the price of honey is high. Yeah. It could just turn right around. If China, for example, if China figured out a way to produce almonds the way California does, but cheaper, then you could see that just turn right around in a matter of matter of years. I mean, yeah, it's, it's like it's, just like with the oil. I mean, right now oil is 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 so cheap that that uh, you know companies are saying, you know, well, we're not making any money on oil now. <laughs> Maybe. And who, who would have predicted that? No, yeah. I couldn't have predicted that last year. It would go down below two dollars. Yeah, it's yeah. amazing, you know, how roughly animals or living creatures and livestock, how unless it has, you know, a monetary value attached to it, how quickly it can decline in population. And you see that in other conservation right. areas, and how you know, unless people are paying to hunt the animal. 
animals, you know, they're going to end up going, you know, extinct. It's, it's just amazing that it's, do you think, um, you know, a more accurate way of looking at bee population is by looking at the percentage of annual losses, you know, on an apiary by apiary uh, view, you know, by looking at the actual percentage of losses? No, no, not really. What I, what I do a presentation called um, Keeping the Hive Alive, which is about sustainable beekeeping. And normally when somebody does a presentation on sustainable beekeeping, they're trying to teach you how to keep your bees alive. And that's difficult because everybody's um, situation is different. Everybody's region is different. Everybody's skill set is different. That's not what I present. What I present is the idea that keeping the hive alive is keeping beekeeping as a community alive. Uh, as long as there's beekeepers, there's going to be bees. It's, some will do well and some may be doing poorly. And um, the, the idea of losing bees in the winter, that's that's old news for, for upstate, you know, you know, for New England and, and the northern states. Bees have always died off in the wintertime. Mm-hmm. There's always been uh, beekeepers in the southern states ready to sell bees the beekeepers in the north, and I think this is an example of how beekeeping can be sustained, not just in my state, but in my country. You know, to me, it's not some kind of a, a, you know, sign of defeat that I've, now I've got to go buy more bees. To me, that that's just how it is. You know, some, some years the bees do well over winter, and you don't have to buy bees. Other years, they do really poorly, and I would rather see those people that raise bees in the south have a steady income and keep keep supplying bees for people in the north. That way, we we always can know that they're going to have them for us if we need them. And so, to me, sustainable beekeeping means keeping beekeeping itself alive. And um, one of the ways that, that that is happening is, of course, every generation develops a, an interest in, in bees and beekeeping that's been going on for. Hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, people are fascinated by bees, yeah. not just because you know there's money money to be made. In fact, you know most of the, I like to say that you know the small beekeepers we're the ninety nine percent. You know only one percent of the beekeepers are commercial beekeepers that, that run thousands of hives. Mm-hmm. The ninety nine percent of the beekeepers are you know people with five, ten, twenty, maybe a hundred. And um, it's not clear how many hives there are in the United States because of the way the censuses have changed over the years, and they don't count a lot of bees. But I'm almost convinced now that there's probably 2 million colonies in the hands of commercial beekeepers and something in the neighborhood of 1 or 2 million in the hands of uh, small-time timers like the 5, 10, 15, 20 range. And so it's about half, you know, are commercial and half are not commercial. And, and um, the thing about small-time beekeepers, they're doing it because they want to. They're not doing it because that's the only thing they know how to do, no. which is the case with a lot of commercial beekeepers. There's nothing wrong with it. I mean, if you are a third-generation beekeeper, that's the only thing you know how to do. That's what you would want to do because that's what you're good at. But um, that does not necessarily mean it's going to be able to produce a good living and feed the family. In fact, there's an old saying that if a, if a guy can make $1,000 doing bees, uh, he or she can probably make $2,000 doing anything else. <laughs> yeah, we do put a lot of 
a lot of uh, work and innovation in the beekeeping. It well, it, it, yeah, it requires a great deal of know-how, great deal of staying on top of, um, you know, the information. And it's a hard work at certain times of year. Harvesting honey can be very hard. Yeah. People wouldn't be doing it, I guess, if they didn't like it, I think. That's correct. That's correct, which is which is really the fascination of it. You know, the average person says finds out that you're 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 you know lugging heavy boxes full of stinging insects around and calling it fun. What's the matter with it? these people? You know, that's your idea of fun. But but you know, I mean, there's plenty of examples of people that do things that are hard and and uh, maybe sometimes painful. You know. But there's a reward, of course. Yeah. You know, there's, you know, a lot of different things, you know, that are um, are hard on the bees these days. I guess, you know, what's your kind of brief outlook on on the future of beekeeping, and does it look like the bees are going to become, you know, I guess maybe in 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 regards to varroa and, and viruses, do you think it, it's going to become more and more healthy over? Over a over time, you know, in in a right, amount of time, right, or, uh... right. Well, I'm optimistic about it. You know, I I've seen uh, improvements on on the um, the ways of caring for bees. Now, of course, every you know, all the researchers are trying to develop uh, genetic solutions where we can breed better bees that are more capable of taking care of themselves. But there's also new control. Methods for controlling uh, varroa mites that are that are better and more effective and less have have less um, side effects. For example, the early treatments were basically uh, insecticides in various formulations that were strong enough to kill the mites without hurting the bees or contaminating the honey. The next generation of mite control methods have been these uh, organic acids, which are not strictly speaking. Insecticides they they tend to to, to, to you know asphyxiate the, the mites mm-hmm. uh, since they're smaller than the bees they it takes smaller amounts of um, you know uh, vapors to asphyxiate them for example for example formic acid or oxalic acid yeah and then there's you know there's always somebody's coming up with a new thing uh, you know that's going to be um, more effective and, and have less uh, negative impacts because nobody, of course, nobody wants to spray their food or you know treat their pets with chemicals or you know sprinkle sprinkle chemicals on ourselves or right. ingest chemicals. Nobody wants to do that. Um, you know, nobody wakes up in the morning and thinks, "What chemicals can I apply today?" You know, everyone wants to have a healthy life where we don't depend upon these things, but on the other hand, sometimes a little bit of a prevention, you know, goes a long ways. And, and But I, it, back to your question, I think that, that beekeeping has gotten a little bit more uh, difficult. You have to stay pretty much on top of things, but this is the age of information. The information is available. The big problem with the information is the average novice doesn't know how to determine whether they're getting good information or bad information. Mm. So I, you know, I think that people have to really scrutinize their teachers and think: Is this person trying to give me good information so that I'll succeed, or is this person trying to make a name for themselves 
and, you know, pass themselves off as the latest uh, guru. Yeah. You know, uh, that, that you know, there's a lot of people out there that are selflessly, selflessly dedicating themselves to uh, beekeeping and, and spreading beekeeping information. And, you know, they're, they're writing in, in the journals, like myself, I write for, for the American Bee Journal, and, and try to just present very level-headed, mm-hmm. uh, you know, information-strong, but interesting uh, articles and, and uh, you know, not, not lead people down the garden path where it's all going to be, you know, uh, roses and, and, you know, roses and, and irises. It's, this is work, just like anything else, and the, you have to learn learn the technique. I mean, you wouldn't expect to, to learn how to sail a sailboat without studying it and practicing it and having a good teacher Somebody that's you know sober <laughs> yeah. and is going to help help you learn how to do it and then let you do it yourself. So uh, it's just like anything else. But I think maybe some people have an idea that oh, I heard you could just get bees and put them in the backyard and they would take care of themselves and and you would get honey and that was that's about the yeah. extent of your your investment. And it's never been like that, really. I mean. People like to gloss over the, the difficulties of the past. Mm. Oh, it's so much easier, you know. Blah blah blah. Well, um, you know. I think I think beekeeping is kind of people's first introduction. You know, maybe in in agriculture or just in learning about biology and and other scientific areas. And so it's like I was talking about earlier. You've got to learn, you know, you know how to think and and you know how to think about thinking. You know, if I you know, right. If I go go into learning how to raise chickens now or gardening, I'm gonna if I'm reading or listening to people, I'm I'm now gonna you know know to take things with a grain of salt and not yeah. do a little bit more background research. And, yeah, you know that's, it's kind of been my right, first introduction it, to right. that kind of thing. Popular authors want to present things in such a way that that it will read easily and people feel good and they'll think, oh, this is for me, uh, you know. Um, it gets complicated, you know. There's a, a lot of interest right now in in ponds with with fish, and 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 you know the idea you can just dig a pond and put fish in it, and that's all you have to do. That that that's not so. There's all kinds of things that you have to understand. You have to understand the care, you know, the care and uh, and um, techniques of doing something. And if it was easy, then everyone would be doing it. And it wouldn't be a thing. No, absolutely. So I, I can, I should go soon. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. I'm gonna. You I don't know, want to just go. cut uh, you off, but, but so we can, we can talk again if you want. If you, want, if you have some questions that came about uh, during this conversation, or if you want something clarified, yeah. uh, you, you know, you could call again um, Sunday afternoon if you wanted to. Yeah, I definitely want to talk to you again. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, I'll just email with you and and yeah. thanks, thanks so much for. For let me talk to you and, and being on. No, no, it's perfectly all right. I enjoy it. Yeah. All right. Well, have a good evening. Yeah, you too. Thanks a lot. Thank you. So that was my talk with Peter Loringborst. He has a website at peterloringborst.com and he has some of his workshop presentations and articles that he's written. And like I said, he's been writing articles in the American Bee Journal lately and has over 30 publications. 
So be sure to check out the Thinking Bee Podcast group page on Facebook, and if you can, share that. And I also have a personal business page called Ratcliffe Beekeeping. And I'll be having several good guests coming up, Randy Oliver, Les Crowder, and Bill Mares. So if you have any questions for them, make sure you make a post on Facebook. Until next time, thanks for listening.